This is the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel. This series features important conversations on health policy issues, as well as advocacy efforts to advance access and quality to musculoskeletal health care. Be sure to tune in on the third Tuesday of every month for our regular program. I'm your host, Doug Lundy, chair of the AAOS Advocacy Council. All right, y'all, welcome to 2022. We have a special guest with us today, Mr. Tony DeRay. Tony is CEO and the agency principal at BSI Corporate Benefits here in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And our topic today is physician advocacy for patients with the insurers. So this is a whole different way of looking at advocacy. Many times we consider advocacy being with the legislative or the regulatory branches of government, but there's more to it than that. We'd like to talk with Tony today about the advocacy that we can perform as orthopedic surgeons for our patients with the insured. Mr. DeRay, thank you very much for joining us, and please tell us about yourself a little bit. Doug, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Like you said, I'm the CEO of BSI Corporate Benefits. BSI is an employee benefits consulting firm. So easy way to say it is we're the middleman. Companies come to us to essentially negotiate with insurance carriers and also to support their membership as they're navigating a very complicated healthcare system. When I started this business 20 years ago, 40% of employees across the country got their insurance through their employer. That number is now 70%. So when we talk about the payer, the person who's paying the bill, seven out of 10 times, that's the employer that's paying the bill and the insurance carrier, they're simply performing an administrative fee. And of course, which I'm sure we'll talk about is negotiate contracting. We're representing the employer and supporting that member and helping them navigate the system. So to your point, you're dealing with many different types of employers that do many things, and the language around healthcare insurance is completely foreign to them. I bet you do a significant amount of educating your clients because this is not within their strike zone, right? A thousand percent. It's primarily how I'm kind of built the company, I'm trying to connect education with the employee and the member. Because remember, the employee maybe have the insurance card, but a lot of them have families. And you have to educate sometimes not just the employee of the company where the insurance comes from, but the spouse who may be the actual person who controls care. So we spend a ton of time trying to educate employees because a lot of times, a lot of these wonderful benefits that are available through employers, they don't know about. And then when they do have to use the system, there's also quite a bit of advocacy that has to happen on their behalf there. Yeah, I bet. So when we're seeing patients in the clinic and somebody comes up and you drop something expensive on them, like an MRI or God forbid, even something as expensive as surgery, were it not for insurance, this would be overwhelming to them. So the only time we really hear anything about insurance is, yeah, I've got it, or yeah, I've got it, and let me tell you about all the obstacles that I have to using it. Can you help us understand some of the things that you commonly see that are obstacles to our patients actually getting the benefits of the insurance that they paid for? I think it starts with education. Don't quote me on this stat, but I think it takes the average American about 27 days to buy a new car. And the average decision on healthcare choices at open enrollment every year takes less than 20 minutes. You're expected to make a very complicated decision for yourself and your family that has very significant consequences. So that education piece starts right there because you don't start to care, unfortunately, about what health insurance card you have until you need it. <laughs> and that sometimes can be a challenge because obviously when you walk into a facility, that's the first question that you get asked 
And to your point earlier, usually it's a hand on the card and pray. That's so true. In my former practice in Atlanta, when the ACA came out and people suddenly got that insurance card, they go, look, I'm insured. And you go, yeah, but there's many issues with that. And that was really a sobering moment for those poor people when they suddenly had that expectation jerked out from under them. Yeah. I think obviously employers are trying to manage never-ending cost increases from a healthcare perspective. And sometimes those decisions on how to manage that cost are made in boardrooms without the voice of how it's going to affect the employee and the member. A different insurance carrier, change in, in plan design, it makes the spreadsheet work, but there's not as much or more time and attention spent on how it's going to affect the actual population. They're called employee benefits for a reason. <laughs> so you're spending all this money. Let's get some bang for your buck. So in terms of education, how can we help our patients be better versed in that and better prepared for that? A couple of things. We'll give you our experience since COVID. Of all the negatives of the last two years, one of the positives in our industry is pre-recording an A to Z tutorial on what insurance is being offered through their employer. Employees can then sit there with a cup of coffee and spend two hours rewinding and playing to make sure that they have a true understanding of the benefits that are offered. For me, being in this business 20 years, it takes a pandemic to say, wow, this we should have been doing this a long time ago. As opposed to I have people flying all over the country, you know, doing those meetings in person. So rather than have the dealing with healthcare and the pressure there, what can be done before it's game time? A member can be educated on the provider physician side, and they can ask questions if they don't obviously understand. So when we're talking about obstacles to care, another one that all of our members are well accustomed to are all the utilization management people that we get these reviews all the time. He's like, hey, you need to call so-and-so and get UM stuff on this. I could see from the insurance standpoint, from the company, why they feel these things are important. But on the other hand, I could tell you that a lot of times we view them as unnecessary disruptors to care to try to not pay for certain benefits and just make it so difficult that people give up. So how do you feel that the utilization management review process really creates roadblocks and inefficiencies? Or is this something that really we just have to get over? Like my mother always says, the answer is in the middle. So if you look at the history of healthcare and go back all the way to maybe fee for service. So now almost pendulum swings all the way too far the other way, which is there's so many hoops to jump through in order to actually get the care delivered that that causes so much anxiety and challenges for the member, for obviously the physician. So I think it comes back to education. And maybe if I could equate it to reoccurrences and readmittance, you guys never want that. You want to be able to perform a surgery and you want to be able to go right the first time. When we're involved, when our customer service gets involved is when that seven to 10 day window goes by on a pre-auth and it gets denied. We're like the grease, right? So we'll bang the heads together, make sure that they're talking and not just blaming each other and then get them to get what needs to get done on file so the member can get the service. If the rules exist today the way they do, how can everybody on the provider side be on the same page, understanding that every insurance company has a unique way of doing it, right? There's no uniform way, but is everybody coached up? Does everybody internally have the education that they need to get it right that first time? When it goes past that, that's when things start to get heated. That's well said. Now, you brought this up a little bit before. I am sure, like everybody else in the world, COVID has dramatically affected this whole process. What other things do you feel that COVID has done, at least in a positive way, to impact this whole process and the process for patients? 
I think from a positive perspective, necessity is the mother of all invention. So the idea that we've come up with better ways to communicate because it was more of a challenge, education, I think, has improved to some degree, at least from how we're trying to educate. On the other side of it, the challenge is that 85% of our business across the country is self-funded. That's nearly a billion dollars of healthcare premium that we're responsible for. And the challenge that we see care was delayed for a better part of a year on a lot of non-COVID related things, people skipping care, skipping treatments. And you saw that reduction last year across the board in claims. In 2021, over 20, you had a pretty dramatic drop in claims activity. It's not like everybody during COVID just got healthier. The worry is this pent up demand and what's going to be the ultimate cost two, three, five years from now on people that delayed care. So I guess long answer to that COVID piece is how do we re-engage those members? How do you re-engage those individuals to get them back to doing the things that they should be doing, whether it's the delayed surgery, whether it's the therapy that they skip. So it doesn't get to a point where it becomes a very expensive situation. So there are some improvements that that we feel should be made to the system. We've heard many of this on the federal level in terms of what the guidelines at a CMS that are coming down on that. So interoperability has become an umbrella term for many forms of streamlined function between healthcare systems. Can you share some examples of improvements that would impact the efficiency of musculoskeletal care? I'll take it from an employer perspective. Every year, it's our responsibility to go into the open market And potentially that involves changes in carriers. And that's a big challenge that we have when a company does change carriers in that there's not systems in place necessarily on the insurance carrier side. If you switch from a Cigna to a Blue Cross Blue Shield or to Aetna, those systems don't talk. In my world, in dealing with that end of it, that would certainly be a way to eliminate some real headaches when you switch the member is the one that lands on because they may have gone through something like step therapy to get to a certain drug. They might've taken them years to go through that. Well, you switch carriers and then all of a sudden the carrier says, you know what, you're not going to be on Embrol anymore. Take some ibuprofen and then let us know how that goes. On the insurance carrier side, if there were better systems in place across the board, that would really help the member. So Tony, to be completely fair, I'm biased, right? So I feel that I know what's best. I feel that I know what the patient needs. I've discussed it with the patient. On the other hand, though, many times we as physicians believe that the insurer is putting up unnecessary blocks. What do you think beyond prior authorization? Are there other decision points that I would have as a physician that are hampered by insurers that may or may not be reasonable? I guess I'll go along with you on the bias. If it was easier, there'd be no need for me. (laughs) So it's job security, the fact that this system doesn't work so well. I think honestly, in looking at what is it that we come in and fix, what would be a way to avoid having us to come in and mitigate that? We talked about it earlier a little bit, that first volley that goes with the pre-auth. And that policy typically is a seven to 10 day turnaround on you know, the letter that then will come back and say, we have enough documentation or we do not. Regardless of the, sometimes the ridiculousness of their requests, which is another conversation, these are the things that they want right now. What's the best way to do that right the first time? What kind of time and attention is being spent demanding from the insurance carriers? If you want us to jump through these hoops 
then what we demand is that you provide us with the resources, an individual for training, et cetera, and we want to know exactly how to do it. So when we push the button, don't turn around and then deny care. So I think, you know, holding the insurers accountable that way and there's gaps here. If those gaps are identified internally, it's the insurer's responsibility, in my opinion, to close those gaps for your people. Yeah, that's great. You know, the timely nature of this is, in fact, that the no surprises bill was signed into law. And of course, the issue that we have right now is the writing of the regulations by the tri agencies. And we disagree with them, stating that they have gone off of what the intent of the law was. And so that's why many of these issues are so salient at this point in time. From your perspective, can you give your thoughts on the no surprises legislation and the regulations that are being written for it? So I think everybody agrees the idea that the member obviously is no longer responsible for that $25,000 surprise bill is a good thing. But to your point, now all of a sudden you get physicians that deserve compensation that is in line with their talent, their abilities, when you start to tinker with that, that's where we could see leading to some challenges down the road with access to care. The feedback that I would give to your membership to think about is, and I'll use a telemedicine as an example. We know because of the data that if we can successfully put a telemedicine program in, remove all barriers, that is remove all co-pays to use telemedicine, we can have a four to one return for the employer because of making sure that we keep non-emergent situations out of the ER, et cetera. So in using that same logic, how can we deal with what's in front of us, remembering that 70% of the country, it's the employer paying the bill. So I think, how could I make a case in representing the employer to go to them and say to them, we think it makes sense to pay these physicians X because it's going to lead to you saving Y. So I don't know if that's out there in the world in the kinds of data that you have your hands on, but I think that's the way when I process it, what would it take for me to go to an employer who spends $30 million a year on health insurance and say, this is a good spend. If you spend a couple hundred thousand dollars more by truly compensating the physicians, it will lead to your people getting better care which will lead to all of these other positive things. So I think anything that can be done thought process-wise on making the case, why do we deserve to be compensated at a certain level, when it gets to the actual payer, I think thinking less about it as the payer being Cigna, Aetna, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and the payer being the employer, how can we go to them together and say, this makes a lot of sense to be able to put this money out there because you're going to pay a lot less in a lot of places. When we're talking to our patients and they come in very frustrated about the delays, we almost feel are the most empowered in the whole situation. However, on the flip side, many times they're the most vulnerable, they're the least educated about the system and the least able to advocate for themselves on that. And many times it's easy for us to say, just call your insurance company and tell them that you need this. And they look at you, you know, with that stare going, now, how would I do that? So, what do you think? Are there steps or methods or helpful suggestions that we could give our patients? I don't mean this to sound like an advertisement for either my firm or for people like us, but I think that challenge of the way we say it, from our perspective, you can flip over your insurance card and try to call that 1-800 number on the back, but you better take PTO 
Because if you call four times, you're going to get four different answers and you're going to be completely unsatisfied when you're done. So there has to be, to some degree, some advocacy on their part. So that can come from an employer. Think about the great resignation and all the things that our employers are trying to do right now to hold on to their people. When you've got someone who needs to use the healthcare system, walking into an HR office and being told, call the 800 number on the back of your card is not going to get that person thinking highly of their company that they work for caring for them. So I think there's a touch point there that employers have a real opportunity to be advocates. I also think look at advocacy on the provider side. If there's an individual on the provider side that is going to handhold and protect that member through that process, the loyalty, I think, that would come from that interaction is super strong. When you need patients to follow up a certain amount of physical therapy visits, for example, and then their insurance runs out, what's going to make them keep coming? In my opinion, in my experience, that idea that they have such a bond with their provider and they're prepared for their insurance to run out, they're educated, and they're okay saying, okay, I'm still going to do this and I'm going to use HSA dollars, FSA dollars, whatever it takes to continue this treatment. And I know sometimes that's a challenge on the provider side, interacting with the healthcare company or the insurer, but I think it's a huge win to be an advocate on that side. Uh, Yeah, I really agree with you because I've seen that in the past and I really covet that degree of loyalty and buy-in from the patient when they realize that we're really on their side like that. But sometimes it's just not knowing what to tell them what to do because just because we went to medical school doesn't make us experts in the insurance game. And I appreciate your thoughts there. If you had to do this, would there be like a phrase that you would stick in your pocket of what to tell the patient? You correct me if I'm wrong. When you get to a point where you're sitting down with a patient or member and saying, I believe that you need surgery, this is what I want to do. That's not your first touch, most likely. I think for that first touch, whenever that starts, knees bothering someone, shoulders bothering, like something that the beginning of the process. And when that first visit happens, understanding where it could go, that starts feedback to the member. It could end up in surgery. So let's provide that person with information now. This is what we recommend doing now. Start researching. Here's where you start to call your insurance carrier, talk to your human resource department, all of those pieces, and get that process started. All right, y'all. It's been my pleasure talking with Mr. Tony DeRay, the CEO and agency principal at BSI Corporate Benefits, about advocacy that we can do on behalf of our patients with insurers. Hey, Tony, this has been really good. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing with our members. Doug, thank you so much for having me. These are very timely issues with both the No Surprises Bill and the regulations that the tri-agencies are writing in accordance with that, and also the prior authorization bill, which is still stuck back in Congress that our Office of Government Relations is actively advocating before the legislative bodies to try to get that moving ahead. Like I said last year, really look forward to our podcast in 2022. We're going to have an election this year. There's a whole lot of moving parts going on. We feel that there's a fair ability for us to still get a significant amount of legislative and regulatory issues through and passed and move on to improve our ability to care for patients, even in light of this election year and the upcoming lame duck. So 
Y'all stay tuned. We've got a lot of really cool things to talk about in the future with very interesting guests. And thank you once again for listening to the AOS Advocacy Bone Bead Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound design by Mission Based Media. For more information on this topic and other AAOS efforts to shape the future of musculoskeletal healthcare, please visit aaos.org forward slash the Bone Beat advocacy.